This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes. It's Series 5, Episode 6, The Future of Talking to Children About Climate. We have a special guest, Sarchi Lloyd, live from Italy, which will feature a touch of uh, Italian indifference, uh, an incredible impression of a wild boar, and a little bit of a slam for the people of Leon C. So stay tuned for that. But of course, before that, I am joined by Ed Gillespie and Mark Stevenson. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. How are you both? You've done it again, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I I, never like to pick. You also don't want to reveal that I'm your favourite. Well, there is that, but I change my favourite every week, like all parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep the kids on their toes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, I've only got one child, so I don't have that issue. We're all carrying sibling trauma from our own childhood. Yeah. Yes, you've only got one child as well, Ed, so whereas I have two. Which one's your favourite? Well, I love them both equally. Okay. Yeah, but which one's your favourite? I love them both equally. Yeah, I know, but does it change? I love them both equally. And I know that people listen to this podcast because what's happened to me this week, actually, is that I mentioned on a podcast that Emmett had won an Eco Blue Peter badge for thinking about making toys out of recycled materials. And then a design company got in touch, a 3D design and manufacturing company said, would Emmett like to design some toys with us? And this week we went to talk to them about our design ideas, which they're going to turn into products. Amazing. Made from recycled plastic because children's toys are the absolute worst for sort of plastic and mm. being thrown away and whatever. So they take all these old toys, they turn them into this 3D printing material, which itself can be recycled. And then they're going to print a range of toys that we're, we're, we're working on with them. It's a very clever way of using recycled materials in it, which I can't tell you about yet, but uh, watch out for Emmett. That's what's happened in our house. But I love Harris just as much. <laughs> I did wonder why Series 5 is in a rapid decline in the sort of number of mentions of your various books, each of you. And I, mm. I realise now it's, of course, because you're using this series to get your own children now into the industry and get them working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fair play. If anyone needs their chimney swept or, uh, has, <laughs> or has any deep mining opportunities, <laughs> I'm joking. How are your logs? Uh, long-term listeners will know that Ed has had trouble in the past uh, shifting heavy logs. It's good. Uh, but we have, we've had some very high waters, obviously, with all the, the rain and the storm Babette and Kieran and all the catchment of the Chet was rapidly filling up. So I did. I was sort of looking out of my window every morning with a degree of trepidation about, like, mm. oh, the river is looking quite full. But yes, my sluice has remained flowing free. Talking of storms and, and, and unfortunate things that come to, to disrupt us, shall we talk about the absolute hurricane that is Hurricane Suella? Oh, oh yes. Hurricane Suella, yes. She's a lovely lady, isn't she? Which is your favourite home secretary? Do you love them all equally? <laughs> <laughs> what is it you particularly love about Suella? I, well, there's nothing to love about her, is there? Her warmth, her compassion, her generosity of her ideas, you know, the, the way that she bridges divides and manages yeah. to construct these very ornate um, and elegant ways of connecting us and bringing us together. Indeed. But I don't want to ask a genuine question, uh, which is what do you think is actually going on in the mind of that person? I want to be leader. I want to be leader. I want to be leader. I'll do anything to be leader. 
Oh, right. <laughs> I think that's her internal dialogue. But there's no way she could be leading with this kind of rhetoric. Well, that was a stupid thing to say, wasn't it? Why? Yeah. That's like when you've been driving for four hours and you've got half an hour left and you go, do you know what? It's gone all right, this drive, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> there's no way she could be leading with these ideas. <laughs> yeah. She could be yeah. leader of the Tory party. I don't know whether she'd get elected as prime minister. Well, of course. I mean, I mean, and in a way, actually, maybe that's a good thing. If she did become leader of the Tory party, then the, then the, the, that would really send them into the wilderness for a long time. So. Her contribution to the public discourse could be rather toxic, though, I would hazard to suggest. Indeed, but their public discourse is so healthy at the moment. Perhaps it needs a little bit of toxicity just to enliven it up. What do you think? Should we remove our own swearing and talk about this as if we are on history today? Nah, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's annoying is that she will probably lose her. I mean, she's Home Secretary at time of recording, but if she loses her job, it won't be for any of the things she said. It will be for breaking the mysterious code around having this article approved, which is mm. a mealy-mouthed, shitty way of getting rid of someone. Yes, it's a bit like getting Al Capone for tax fraud or yes. or Donald Trump for inflating the value of his properties. You know, It's kind of yeah. like, that's not the reason <laughs> we wanted to get rid of you. How do you think King Charles felt reading out that speech? Did you get the sense that there was a kind of gritting of the teeth going, am I really having to read this shit out? Yeah, I had this little fancy that he would just at one point just go, no, I'm not reading this. Fuck it. This is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) What is this shit? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that would have been fantastic. He's come on a long way, hasn't he, in the role from getting angry about not being able to reach a pen to having to read pages and pages of shit that he fundamentally doesn't believe in (laughs) without saying anything. It's a depressing indictment of how well the system works. Yeah, like many of your comedy shows, isn't it? Sort of pages and pages of shit you don't really believe in, but you say it's (laughs) because because the audience needs to hear it. (laughs) I do as I'm told. (laughs) You do want to have that sort of fourth wall of royal theatre collapse, though. I think you're right, Mark. I think it would be brilliant if he just like if he just paused, looked straight down the barrel of the camera, and just went, "No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing it." I'm not doing it. I can't do it. This is yeah. my conscience speaking. I mean, like, you know, we're in an age now where our consciences get wildly suppressed. And why should they? Because yeah. actually our consciences are justifiably outraged on a daily mm. basis. Well. What does your conscience say? What is your, what's your conscience telling you, John? I've silenced that a long time ago. I don't think he even <laughs> needs to say anything. I think he just needs a sort of flea bag style, just a camera to the side, just for a little look. <laughs> just a little, a little side glance every now and again. That's all it needs. Yeah, and an eyebrow. Yeah. You could do it with a GoPro. Yeah, a Roger Moore eyebrow. What's the point in wearing a crown if you don't use all that metal to strap a GoPro to it? Yeah. Just for Charles's little side eye glance. Yes, indeed. I was with one of the political editors of The Guardian yesterday, strangely, talking about like you know the truth and not the truth. And um, she was uh, talking about um, one of the advisors at, at Downing Street. She was running these stories saying, you know, we've heard that Boris Johnson's saying let the bodies pile high and that he's doing this stuff. And they said, the catalogue not true, catalogue not true. And she said the very same person who told her that was in front of the COVID inquiry going, yes, this absolutely happened. And so it just proves that the civil service and number 10 were categorically lying to us because uh, they've admitted this. You know, it's just outrageous. It's not very surprising, is it, really? Politicians lie, it turns yeah. out. And sometimes people who work for them lie on their behalf. It's outrageous. Speaking of shit, have you seen Channel 4's carbon skidmark campaign? Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, I think you're going to tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's very good. Um, those of you who enjoyed, I think we referenced Joe Lysett's Shell CEO impression, uh, in which he was regurgitating poo on camera as a very thinly veiled metaphor for the shit that comes out of the Shell CEO's mouth. Channel 4 have taken it one further with a whole bunch of sort of gyrating politicians uh, and business execs uh, revealing their enormous carbon skid marks. So never mind your little benign carbon footprint and the fact that the carbon footprint concept was invented by BP in order to push responsibility back on individuals. Channel 4 are now trying to counter that with their carbon skid mark and it's got some serious production values. It's powerful. Excellent. And Ed, I know that you and me will be in the room with some senior BP executives later this month. Oh God, yeah, we will. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh wow, I look forward to that. <laughs> There's a stay tuned if ever there were one. Yeah, exactly. We will. Uh, we'll see how that one pans out. Indeed. I have a message from our guest saying, "I'm here on a dark screen with no sound. It's like being in a flotation tank." Oh well, that's not. Let's not ruin it for her. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's a nice. shame to bring her into the room, doesn't it? We're sorry to ruin your serenity, Sachi. I did that, you know, what people always do in flotation tanks, which is like, you're all peaceful and suddenly you bang on the roof. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, have a wee. Yeah. It never occurred to me that people piss in flotation tanks. No, it didn't occur to me, actually. Jesus, Ed. Just for the record, I'd say I've not been in one. When you say bean. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Mark. Nice to hear your uptight little voice. Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no that's john oh sorry there you go uh, i'll tell you what though that's one of the best entrances to a podcast we've ever had <laughs> well welcome sachi hello hi guys i formally introduce you Yes, I'm excited for this because the two things we get emailed about most, I think, is how to maintain your mental well-being when you care tuppence, as David Attenborough would say about the planet, and how to speak to kids and how to parent about it. So, Ed, take it away. Yes, so it is an honour, privilege and a pleasure to introduce our good friend, Sarchi Lloyd. Um, I first met Sarchi back at the Hay Festival, I think it was in 2016, where she'd been co-opted onto my scurrilous panel show, I'm a sustainability expert, get me out of here, as a willing contestant. So I fed her insects, um, watched as she hosted amazingly empathic sessions on Brexit uh, in the aftermath of the seismic world-shattering vote. And she spent the evening after that ripping the piss out of me, and I thought, I like this woman. Yes, um, I was there. We all shared an we all shared yeah, yes, I, I remember. And we we all thought we liked her because she was so incredibly mean in such a brilliant way. <laughs> anyway, so most recently, Sachi and I took the stage together uh, in the Imaginarium at Shambhala Festival to discuss where not to live in the climate apocalypse because of the fact that despite what we both know about the unfolding climate crisis, we have moved to vulnerable and fragile places. So I'm in my mill, a metre or two above sea level in Norfolk, and Sachi's <laughs> on a farm on a sun-baked tinderbox Italian hillside above the Mediterranean. I'm going to flood. She's going to burn. Yes. We've had lots of adventures together along the way. Um, we've failed to cook scones in a solar oven on a damp Essex marsh, which uh, just revealed how shit we would be as survivalists. Uh, we've done possibly the worst TV pitch ever together. Sachi also introduced Mark and I to the genius Italian uh, concept of Cafe Caretto. Yes. If you haven't had that, it's an espresso with either grappa or a zambuca alongside it. Mm. It was also... Are my immense satisfaction 
to observe Saatchi explaining to an Italian astronomer <laughs> in Italian why the name of the planet Uranus was funny in English. <laughs> uh, but the reason we have invited the funny brilliance of Saatchi Lloyd onto the show is because Firstly, she was a teacher for many years in East London, so actually hang out with a lot of young people, talking with them, getting to understand them as best she could. And she's also written a number of excellent books about near-future realities. Um, most recently, It's the End of the World as We Know It, set in a world at war over cheese. Momentum, which was set against a backdrop of energy wars, price hikes and power cuts, so nothing like the current situation. And perhaps most famously, <laughs> the award-winning two volumes of The Carbon Diaries, 2015 and 2017, which she wrote back in 2009 and 2010, which is set in a near-future dystopian East London. For all you hipsters, that's also how East London was in the 80s and 90s. As Saatchi says about her own writing, the best dystopia is a lens for looking at contemporary society. I like books that get children and reading and if that means vampires and werewolves then so be it but i think reality is a more interesting topic and there's a brilliant review from rebecca runyon about sarchi's books saying that they're who's like rebecca onion yeah rebecca runyon who's rebecca Run she's a legendary book reviewer she's uh i think actually been given a nobel prize for literature for her contributions to the book reviewing world but she said sarchi's books are soft apocalypse uh, which chronicle societies changing as a result of a series of rolling crises rather than in the blink of an eye as from a nuclear blast. And because they take this soft approach, Lloyd's Carbon Diaries books are wonderful at showing the effects of climate change and scarcity on everyday life. They're also completely terrifying. So, and the notion of soft apocalypse, Saatchi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sure about what I feel about soft apocalypse, but uh, yeah. Thank you prefer you. your apocalypse harder. Yeah, I don't know where this is going, and I don't want to even put one foot down this path, so I'm going to stop there. I'd just like to say that Rebecca Onion has not <laughs> been awarded a Nobel Prize for her contribution to literature. I've just checked that online. Yeah. I, I think you'll find actually it's Rebecca Onion. You said Onion. It wasn't me. <laughs> don't, don't, don't try to make me my fault that you mispronounce something. You well, fucker. You know, it's, it's like Mr. and Mrs. Diath, isn't it? It's yeah. like, you know, if you're called Onion, you're going to pronounce it Anion. Yeah. Just a really wrong for everyone. Yes. Ah, Mr. Mr. Canunt. <laughs> anyway, Sachi, it's a joy to have you here. How are you? You're not well. You've, you've become an absolute trooper by joining us this morning. Yeah, I am a bit of a trooper, actually. I have to say, um, ooh, I, I got the shakes and the shivers last night. A proper three-hour, like, ooh, you know, like malaria in the in the Empire days. It was properly like that. Wow. You know, so please excuse me if I'm, I sound very bunged up, I think. But I'm here. I'm here. Let's go. Yeah, you're not, you don't normally sound this adenoidal, it's true. No. It's my Ed Miliband. <laughs> so with your adenoidal tones, which are slightly muffled, Mark's uptight little voice. Yeah. Uh, John's groaning little squeak. Uh, um... <laughs> you sort of got a free hit there because you managed to insult me, but sort of do it as if it was something Sarchi had said. Yeah. A good technique. I'm waiting for one of you to jump in and rip the piss out of my voice, but anyway. It's not the comedy I endorse. I'm all about building bridges and, um, you know, union and being stronger together. We're all about punching up here, punching up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is there is there anyone above us? <laughs> <laughs> How do you punch up in a world of absolute fuckwits? Yeah. Anyway, Sarchi, should I ask you a question? Maybe yes. that might yeah. actually help. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. So 
having read and loved the books, um, I, I, let's just turn the clock back a little bit. So what prompted you to write them in the early noughties? What was the kind of the original inspiration? You know, I don't really know why I do anything and I can't really remember, but I have a, a version of it that I say. Um, I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, they say they're apocalyptic, but um, when I first wrote The Carbon Diaries, my model was uh, Adrian Mole, really, and uh, nothing yeah. happened at all in the book whatsoever. Everyone turned it down, everyone in the publishing world. It was kind of the same story, but with no apocalyptic elements, no strikes, no snowstorms, no political protests. It was just like this, <laughs> you know, as if teenage life isn't hard enough and then you've got to go on rations. It was probably a bit more like 1947, really, you know, 1952 than anything. Mm. And then they just... Uh, Everyone turned me down and Hachette said, you know what, we kind of love this, but can you throw some, some more action at it? So that's what I did. And uh, I just threw the kitchen sink at it, really. It was pretty good fun to do. But really, all I ever want to do is make jokes, really. So I'm, I'm, I'm always a bit surprised <laughs> that it seems apocalyptic. And was there stuff that you wrote? Because obviously you were doing quite near-term dystopia. So, yeah. yeah, the books were only set sort of five or six years into the future, weren't yeah. they, um, to sort of give it that kind of closeness. Um, is there anything that you put in there that you think, obviously now looking back uh, on those years, that, you know, you thought you got absolutely right or, or any sort of future predictions that you got, like, toe-curlingly wrong? Yeah, mostly that really uh, so I rewrote it last year for because Sachette are going to uh, reprint it and uh, I think the big thing really the biggest thing of all one was uh, things about fuel and oil and stuff like that but the biggest thing really was I just I, I didn't have any kind of concept of who I was as a as a kind of privileged white person and, and that, you know, any of those kinds of things was really missing, I think, in the mm. books. Those were the biggest changes that I made when I rewrote it. What do you mean by that in terms of because you were the one creating the sort of narrative voice or just in terms of your writing around the characters? Yeah, and I think, you know, my ideas about things, you know, like 30 years ago, I was flying high, you know, I'm gay, you know, I'm, I was like, cool, I was working in East London, I was a teacher of underprivileged kids. Now I'm so devalued, I'm like the Zimbabwean dollar, you know, I'm like scarcely one rung below Jeremy Clarkson in terms of my privilege in the world and pontificate. <laughs> about things see it's like i've really you know i'm not who i thought i was and, and i have far more consequence and far more things to think about uh in terms of my place and my voice in the book i think that's what i mean mm. and where's that come from has that come from your own assessment is that a publisher note is that from reviews no that's from me just just me right. just growing and changing and and looking around and mm. you know at that time it was still the environment was very uh it was very much a kind of a niche thing or quite an elite thing. And then there wasn't that huge intersection of, well, there was, you know, like three lentil eaters, but, you know, there wasn't that really big intersection of social justice and climate change that there is now. Mm. I, th I think that that's the big thing that's changed for me. Exactly. And speaking as a historic lentil eater. <laughs> Does that mean you only historic lentils? <laughs> exactly. The, only the heritage species of lentils <laughs> that you can exactly. But because that's a really interesting point, isn't it, Sarchi? It's like you know we've all sort of not come of age, but there's been this massive opening up 
uh, and awareness, as you say, from it being a sort of niche concern over the course of the books. And particularly, you know, you set the books in 2015 and 2017, and then obviously the explosion of Extinction Rebellion in 2018 and beyond. You know, but now we're in a position where... I think one of the most recent YouGov polls says, you know, one in three young people in Britain are scared, you know, sad or pessimistic about climate change with almost a third of them feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, what do we, what do we do? Why have we got into this mess where this generation, we've got these sort of, you know, millennials and Gen Zers who are feeling absolutely sort of catastrophically inundated and almost like, engaging with a degree of aversion uh, not to look at the horror show well yeah it's uh, you know it's the dangerous normals you've got to be careful of now isn't it you know the, the whole time i'm just i'm just with my mouth open going what the fuck is going on you know mm. why why hasn't everybody put the brakes on immediately and it's been one of the biggest surprises for me as, as the evidence has come through stronger and stronger and you're seeing it on the ground i thought at that point everyone would go okay we fucking get it now but you yeah. know it, actually it just leads to more fracturing and more you know polarization and different groups it's just like oh my god i remember when i was um when i was a kid probably about seven eight and i realized that um the sun was not eternal you know that moment mm. where you realize yeah. it's going to end and the galaxy was going to end and i remember crying in my bed and thinking you know uh, you know it's, and then my mom came up and said don't worry it's not for billions of years and uh now imagine being nine i mean Billions of years, you're talking about facing total extinction, total species loss, total collapse within a lifetime. I mean, Mm. imagine what that does to you. Is the writing aimed at kids that age? Because my daughter's seven and I'm very aware of she's hearing stuff externally almost before I can control it. So she's learning stuff at school and she's seeing stuff on news clips and things before I even get the chance. I'm very aware of how I'd like to talk to her about it and I try and be... Uh, positive and tell her that you know it's not her responsibility but that you know her generation are are the ones that hopefully will find the solutions and try and make it sound exciting but to to extent that's taken out of my hands even at seven years old she's hearing a lot more than I would like her to and then nine even more capable and and I think your books are sort of young teen are they yeah in their reach I guess so I mean I never really set out to write books for that age it just sort of it, it ended up like that and I like that age group uh, you know, as a teacher, you, you know, I, I see um, I've got quite young kids and uh, as primary school teachers. You're like, why would you want to teach little kids? I like really moody, disaffected teenagers. That's who I am. Uh, <laughs> that's who I like oh, to you're teach. in luck. we got shitloads. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, I, just, I, I just really enjoy it, you know, and I enjoy the, the – I think probably because I feel like that inside still, probably. And mm. so uh, – you know, remember when you were like, <laughs> you know, you're like 16, 17 and you look around and you're like, oh, God, let me not turn into one of those people. You know, just, oh, my God, is that what's waiting for me? The mm. dullness and the, you know, the give upness and the banality and also the unbelievably sad, quiet desperation of, of people who just, people are very sad, really, underneath it all. Anyway, here goes my comic novels. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, God, 
that's not surprising, is it? Like you know, that sadness then manifests in in, in either that aversion that we just briefly mentioned before, or the the radicalization, doesn't yeah. it? You know, so we had the school strikes, we had Fridays for Future, you know, and and now young people are increasingly involved in you know the more extreme end of the direct yeah. action spectrum with just stop oil yeah. you know when you've got the secretary general of the un saying you know climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals but actually the truly dangerous radicals of the countries are increasing the production of fossil fuels you know and that's the where the moral and economic madness lies i mean actually it's a perfectly sane reasonable and rational response isn't it to take to the street totally i can't believe there's not a youth blackout I just can't believe it. What, uh, and also, it's this perfect intersection now, not only of climate catastrophe, but AI and uh, democracy, technology-driven, mm. you know, reduction in, uh, in democracy, a ripping away of education and employment, you know, all this Silicon Valley tech stuff that's driven by outrage, capitalising on market, you know, monetarising. It's just, it's a perfect storm for them. If I was that age, I'd be super radical, super radical. What, what's the point? You know, I, I talk to loads of people now who've just finished their degrees or just finished their kind of A-level years. And loads of them now, you know, with like chat GPT are going, what did I do all that for? What did I study yeah. all that for? This is going to be able to fool any teacher, any time. What did I do all that for? Imagine what that feels like. Yeah. I mean, it sort of stops them in their tracks, doesn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> just yesterday, my daughter came home from school with like, you know, the uh, expected outcomes for year two in, ter in terms of learning outcomes. And I, just, I, and I read through them and I thought, oh, God. Yeah, you know, no. I mean, it, this is the basic stuff. So obviously some of it is important, but it does make you question the the kind of the sausage factory production line uh, and where that's going to turn out our young people, as you've just alluded to, for a world that's changing and spinning out of control around them. Anyway, can we go back to some jokes now, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you, as a result of having yeah. written them and having taught kids, do you yeah. find, because I think, as we see as, as parents and adults it's for us to talk about how we talk to kids and worry about that a lot. Do you find that actually when you speak to kids themselves, because kids have a natural resilience and a desire to make jokes and belittle topics, do you, do you find that they speak with concern to you or do you find that they're actually less worried than we make them out to be? I haven't spoken to any kids for a couple of years. <laughs> because I'm, I'm here in italy so if you want to know do italian kids care it's like a, it's probably like new jersey circa 1982 here there's no consciousness whatsoever about climate change apart from a really thin ribbon of youth uh if, if you went to the northern countries or to america that's completely different but there is uh there's just a blank incomprehension and fury it's just what, what, you know, their feet are to the fire. Mm. The, the dangerous one of the normal people. You know, and it's, it's like Jonathan Porritt, I was reading the article you sent, Ed, and uh, yeah. he was saying, you know, just stop oil. It's not even like the uh, demands are really radical, really. What, you know, they're just, just asking for them to, you know, phase out fossil fuels and, you know, manage a just transition. Is that so incredibly radical? You know, I think it's interesting about this, you know, tell the truth thing from uh, yeah. uh, XR, which I think is interesting. I think there's two parts to tell the truth. I mean, on the one hand, tell the truth can mean, you know, facts, figures, predictions, you know, adaptations, whatever, you know, this is the reality. 
But my feeling, though, is that there's another way of telling the truth and that major world religions are really, really very good at, which is telling the truth about the human condition, that people, you know, people follow, follow traditions and churches are incredibly successful because they see the truth about human beings, that they're lonely, scared, guilty, struggling, need help, connection, guidance, love. You know, and I think that is very, very sorely lacking in the climate change movement, that kind of pastoral putting a hand around the shoulder because, you know, you're not going to get anywhere by scaring the bejesus out of people. But at the same time, you have to be honest. And it's that balance, I think, that we need to find. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think elements of that are there, but I agree with you. I don't think they come to prominence enough. They certainly don't come into prominence enough in the media coverage of the yeah, movement. Yeah, sure. I think if you're part of those networks, as I am, you know, you do yeah. come across a lot more of that sort of mutual support stuff, and yeah. it isn't just, as you say, terrifying the horses. It is I don't, I don't get any of that from you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. We've both shed a tear over a glass of wine late at yeah, night. But that's, that's about something entirely different. <laughs> when, when the wine runs out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. So how would that look then? Because we just discussed the new Channel 4 Skidmark campaign, which is very funny. And I don't know what that is. T- tell me. Uh, it's a whole bunch of CEOs and, and business execs and politicians basically gyrating around on their private jets and in a boardroom and in the Houses of Parliament with their trousers off, um, <laughs> with huge carbon skid marks appearing on the back of their pants. It's pretty graphic. It's very funny. It's very well put together. I wouldn't necessarily say it's about bridging divides. Um, <laughs> you no. Know, how, how does the pastoral? How does the pastoral care come into that? Do Do we have a sort of nurse coming in to sort of clean them up with a wet wipe and guide them towards well, some cleaner underpants? John, if you haven't been aware of this over five series, we are that nurse. Nurse ratchet. <laughs> you, you use sandpaper. You don't use a wet wipe. <laughs> Just a little dab of sand in there. You rub their underpants in their faces. Yeah. Well, but anyway, I think the, the point that Channel 4 are trying to make is like, you know, uh, the, the the system is actually the one splurging out the carbon, and yet we always try to blame the individuals. And, mm. of course, it's both. Yeah. It's about yeah. personal responsibility, but it is, absolutely has to be about system change as well, which is where I think, you know, that radicalism comes from in, in terms of the activists. Because, you know, to Saatchi's point, you know, there's an empathic element to some of this because I think the other binary opposition we have is between the sort of false hope uh, and the total doom. So, you know, you, what some people call climate bright-siding, yeah. you know, where it's like the sort of glib optimism, um, which is actually more about a like avoiding the reality than actually engaging with it. Yeah. And then at the other extreme, you know, is that resigned fatalism that it's all too big, too ugly, too scary, too late. And why should I do anything? I might as well just get on with my life. And like in the middle there is where all the creative, innovative, fertile, human middle ground sits. Uh, and yet we don't, we don't occupy that middle ground well enough. Mm. So how do we, how do we occupy that middle ground? It's very hard to see yourselves, isn't it? It's so much bigger than it used to be. And it's, you know, this movement is growing so much. You know, I was looking at uh, Emily Davison, you know, who a suffragette threw herself under the king's horse. You know, they got to that point where they were really radical, the suffragettes, by this point. So at the time, the press coverage of that was, <laughs> was all about the jockey and the horse and the king and really, really negative about her. 
and it took five churches to find a church that was prepared to bury her. Really? Yeah. Wow. But on the other hand, I, I watched some footage of it the other day in BBC archives, and it's her burial in Morpeth, where she came from. And it's really moving. You know, there's a lot of people there. And, you know, it's an intersection. It's it's trade union, you know, it's, it's suffragettes. It's, you know, kind of civil rights. But, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. And you see there is a – you just got to uh, find your allies. you got more and more allies and find things you've got in common with them. Mm. If only there was some kind of club – that people who go to cared about climate and the future, and there was some kind of podcast they could listen to about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Is this the time we, 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 we say get down to People Planet Pint again? Yeah. What's the Italian version of People Planet Pint? Person Prosecco. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I know yeah. the conversation has to move forward, but I, I could talk a lot more about why you feel that there's this sort of apathy to it in Italy. Oh, it's just unbelievable. But that's that thing that you always say, Ed, which is the future's here, it's just not distributed evenly. Yeah. I'm always trying to work out the kind of British version of where I am. It's a mixture between Boston in Lincolnshire and Leon C, I think. It's a mix of those two things, but with unbelievably beautiful sea and rivers and stuff, but with those people. So they don't give a fucking Leon C, and they don't care here either. It's values, isn't it? You know, we're interested in climate change because it hits us right in our values. It always did, you know, because we're people on the values chart who are interested in internationalism and, and universalism and, you know, things that are bigger than us. But if your values are not that, facts bounce off you, like facts bounce off us that we're not interested mm. in. You know, yeah. we're not interested in village parish gossip or, you know, what the Lions Club is doing for Britain or, you know, loads of things that those people really care about. Mm. So we're all the same, but it's quite shocking to me in Italy, uh, the lack of interest in climate change. and All the coverage is still very much like a, it's an anomaly. Oh, it's weird, this weather. It's changing, but it's weird, but it's just strange. And it's just this year. Huge amount of denial here. That speaks surely to a, because if I really engage with it and, and I start to believe it is true, that's so terrifying that I don't want to go there. Yeah, but, you know, why is it? I mean, France, which is a similar kind of culture to, to Italy, now they have a thing weather, with a weather forecast that they say weather forecast and climate change forecast. You know, they, they've really moved forward. It's, you know, it's corruption, it's denial, it's all sorts of things. But this is a major European country that hardly has a, an ounce of interest in the subject. Quite interesting. I didn't think we were going to get into an Italian bashing uh, segment <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the show, but you know, it's just welcome. We've, I don't think we've ever demonised an entire nation on one particular subject. Oh, we, we, we must have. Oh, have you, you, were, you were quite. Yeah, we've done Saudi Arabia, I guess, on on human rights. Exactly. There you go. But you know, Saudi Arabia human rights. That's that's pretty. You know, that's that's easy. I would imagine it's quite. You know, but you know, I didn't think we were going to get to Italy and and and, and the weather forecast as, as the next one in that kind of. You know. De demolish demolish a nation <laughs> i'm just using it as an example to say that, that it's you know where it stands in in the preoccupation of a nation is very very low in comparison to where it stands in britain mm. i'm going to start doing that every week i'm going to make that our calling card now if we haven't demonized entire nations for no reason at all there's <laughs> a very good reason yeah I'll tell you what they think about ai in turkmenistan <laughs> fuck all mate <laughs> So, Sarge, you're listening to you. Yeah. 
and I, which I always enjoy. There's a part of me that's listening to you, and, and it's almost sounds like you're saying, well, we, we're all fucked. There's, you know, there's, there's almost like a fatalism to, to, to the tone of it, saying, you know, if this nation, even with these floods and everything that's going on at the moment, can't get their head around it, that, that space that Ed talked about in the middle where we kind of accept the truth, but also, you know, still feel we have agency to do something about it. How, how do you occupy that space? Because there's so many different stages of being fucked, isn't there? I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, there's completely fucked, there's right royally fucked, there's quite fucked, there's a little bit fucked, you know, and and now it's it's a it's a rescue operation to save what can be saved. Mm. That's what I think. We are fucked. That we're on the fuckometer now. That that we're, we're there, but it's amazing what can be salvaged and what can be protected and preserved if you move again now, but we're definitely there. Mm. That's what I feel. I think I agree. And when people say to me, you know, what, why are you doing all this? And well, I want to make the future uh, less shit. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't mean it's not, there's, there, we are, we've lost so much already and there's already a lot of stuff yes. baiting that we're going to lose. But, you know, yeah. every tonne of carbon kept out the atmosphere. Is totally. Bit, yeah. There's so much left to save. And that's the sort of slightly more humble approach, isn't it, than the hubristic, you know, techno-utopian optimism. Like, hey, you know, if everyone could just stay optimistic, please, we'll be able to sort all this out. And uh, and again, I don't know whether that's realistic. I think it's far more humble and probably effective to accept that it's already five past midnight and then do what you can, rather than, you know, desperately squawking that, no, no, it's still five to 12. It's okay. Yeah. So, so generationally, I'm interested in this because certainly, you know, when I was a child, there was still a sense of, you know. Imagine you as a child. <laughs> <laughs> that head on a tiny body. <laughs> we know from listeners' emails that he was he was known as Clark Kent at school. Because, um, <laughs> a, a briefcase. And, and now, obviously, Mark has become the mature Superman we know and love. Yes, okay. Yes, and, and, and yes, still have my ability to hold my own in a conversation, clearly. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm thinking of myself as a child. You know, I was lucky enough to be born as privileged as I am. And there was a sense of like, you know, there, there's your life to go out and lead there. You know, it, there's opportunity. There's a growth sort of view sort of uh, um, in terms of your the life you can lead, but also the, 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 your mental uh, landscape and your emotion, you know, all that stuff now. If, you know, going back now, what we're essentially saying is to our children, or they're going to us like, well, that's not the world you're going to. You're going to build a bachelor decline, more war, more disruption, a very, very sort of chaotic and, and, and uncertain time. You know, if I look at my two children who were seven and four, I still want them to be happy about living. But but hmm. but th- that juxtaposition of like, you know, that I didn't have to worry about to a certain extent, they do. And how, what's the balance of saying, you know, actually you're going into a, a life of, of, of where the world is in turmoil but it can be a good life for you. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, what were people saying to their children, you know, in 1917 you know, or 1936 when you could kind of see that? I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts on that, Sarge, because I find that an interest, you know, as a parent, it's something that occupies me. Yeah, it's no uh, coincidence that a lot of people, I would say in the West, in the vanguard of the climate change movement, were people you know, a bit older now, people had very nature-connected childhoods and were very in love with nature. Uh, They really wanted to protect things, not from a place of fear, but a place of love and affection and protection. And I think it's 
really important to model that with children. You've got to be really enjoying sunsets and you know and eating great food. Can I just clar- clarify something there? Yeah. Because of your cold. Sorry. Yes. I think you said eating great food, but it sounded like eating grapefruit. You don't just mean just eat grapefruit, do you? I mean just eating grapefruit. Yes, great. Okay. All right. Just glad we got that cleared up. Yeah. <laughs> grapefruit. You know, it just all the bless. You know, you have to be quite quite a lot in gratitude, I think. And uh, but that's partly why we came here. Uh, my kids are now going to start turning to teenagers before I know it, and it'll be time for something different for them. But I'm hoping that we've really given them a great, full, free nature loving childhood because mm. you know it's like having a, a, a happy family you dip into that bowl every day for the rest of your life if you've if you've got that thing that's alive in your heart it stays alive and i think it's really important to do that and you have to model that you know i do know a lot of climate people you know they're quite quite in their heads really and it's really important to love nature and to get your hands dirty and to go out and, and, and model awe and, and surprise and wonder it's it's those things i think are, are really important mm, i totally agree i mean i just i took my my daughter and a couple of friends of hers for a kind of a walk in the woods uh you know after school yesterday and it was at dusk and it was magical yeah we were rampaging through the forest as the kind of the darkness gathered and you know sticks were being played with and leaves kicked up and you know it was just a fantastic hour and a half and walking back in the gathering gloom it was a kind of interesting metaphor and i when you were talking there it also reminded me of something that dougald you know my my co-host on The Great Humbling this week, he said, you know, the world is woven through with horror. He said, we're reminded of that the moment we switch on our phones, but it's also woven through with wonder. And we need reminding of that because if you let in the horror without letting in the wonder, then it leaves us broken and unable to play our part. And it is that, it's that mixture of wonder and horror, I think is also part of unlocking this. Also, you know, crisis is fun. You know, you all get to gather together and, you know, and, you know, loads of people will, will, will often recount that wars or, you know, yeah. difficult situations or dramatic things often were a, an amazing experience for them. So, you know, it, it can be like, okay, you know, you've got this mountain to climb, but it's, you know, you're going to do it. It's going to be exciting. Amen to that. It's a positive end of sorts, isn't it? It's not the one I was expecting. I'll tell you what, it is fucked, and it's more fucked than you thought, but yeah. might be all right, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think it's because about something we said on, on last week's episode and something I was saying yesterday to all these CEOs, that you know, in these, in these times of change, when things are going to be incredibly chaotic and whatever, yes, that's horrific, but those are actually the moments when things can change long term for the better because everything else is broken so you have to replace it with something yeah. you know so you mm-hmm. have after the first world war you have the league of nations which isn't perfect yes. and after the second world war you have the bretton woods institutions which again aren't perfect you know and maybe we look forward to you know 2050 and another reimagining of the world works for the next 50 years and then it has to be reimagined again so there is a you know the game to play is like you know getting us through this to that mm. and and that that in itself can be you know incredibly exciting and, and inspirational yeah um, also you know who does really well in a crisis pessimists 
Uh, optimists go like down like cut timber, but pessimists are like, yeah, bring it on. I told you. I told you. I told you. Shit. <laughs> John, this is your time. <laughs> it's just like that. Told you so. No problem. This is my time to shine. Five and a half series of the podcast suddenly make sense to me. <laughs> it's, it's the age of the introverts and the pessimists. Oh, my goodness. John Richardson yeah. and the Future Notes. It's the wrong way around. It's the Future Notes and John Richardson. <laughs> Said in the Bible, the squeak shall inherit. <laughs> I, might, I might paraphrase. Yeah. The uptight <laughs> shall thrive. <laughs> Nothing's getting up this clenched anus. There's no carbon skid mark coming out of that. <laughs> Did you just say clenched anus? <sighs> I did, yes, which I, sounds funny in Italian, but you have to explain it to an Italian um, space scientist. <laughs> what, yeah, what is the Italian for clenched anus? I don't know. I'm, I'm just sitting, I'm about to sit my B1 citizenship exam, but clenched anus has not yet come up. Yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah. Didn't we say Vaffanculo in the first ep- episode? I think. Oh, uh, almost certainly, yeah. 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 Yes. Well, so my favourite of all Italians is Libertà Cittua Trick. Le sue palazzine, which is a kind of Roman curse, and it's, uh, uh, you know, I curse you to death, and I curse three quarters of all your ancestors. So just like, <laughs> not yes. all of them. Why, why three quarters? Yeah, that's, that's, that seems the, the particular twist in it for me. It's exactly. Like... <laughs> I curse seventy-five percent of your ancestors, but I leave the other twenty-five percent untouched because I'm reasonable. <laughs> mm. Talking of ancestors, though, actually, something this is coming back to me. Something that I was thinking when when Sarchi was talking about the love for the world. If you go back to older systems of governance or or relationship with the world, you go back to much more indigenous cultures, there was that sense of, you know, we are here as stewards, we are in yeah. love with this, mm. we, 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 we keep this for other people and our governmental and our governance systems and our rituals are based around that idea of love and connection and stewardship as opposed to the ones that we have, which is like, how do I hold on to my little bit as all the shit unfolds around me? And I think that back to the, almost the first thing you said, Sarchi, about, you know, we've got to feel our way into loving the future again or loving the world in a way that that, that is it is 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 something bigger than us you know that's what you're doing with your with, with your kids in Italy as well i think that's that's where we need to go and having that gratitude but we've been trained up to think as individuals and 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 consumers and whatever and then and and to have only so little agency and it's it's like it's like it's it's kind of tragic isn't it it's just taking away the beautiful essence of being a human being yeah. in yeah. a wonder on a wonderful yeah. green blue planet and yeah. saying would, would you like some m&ms and and complete yeah. existential doubt <laughs> yeah we're just a really sold out for you we're like a a fool in a fable you know it's come back with some, you know some magic beans you know that aren't magic beans it's terrible really we're mm. just so easily fooled <laughs> yes these beans are not magic yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh well i'll just have to eat normal beans <laughs> you know in that case they you know the fool always had a mob who clattered around the head and made him go back to market to fix it that's who we need a big handy yeah. mob with a frying pan for humility i know i was just watching a saturday night live clip of like they interviewed mother earth on the, for like the weather report <laughs> oh, yeah. and she and, and she just goes she goes this could work out one of two ways either you help me or i kill you <laughs> <laughs> that's great <isn't> it? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound very motherly <laughs> oh and you should see the sketch it's very very funny indeed feels like we've reached a very funny conclusion do you think 
Is there, is there more <laughs> at the end of the world? <laughs> I just, I, I almost, uh, there's a risk that if we sort of carry on talking, we go back to sort yeah, of some yeah. of the pessimist chat. And I actually think that led in such a nice way because there was yeah. a point where I thought, fucking hell, this is getting bleak. And then at the end, it's everybody's laughing and oh no, exactly, we're sort of being quite positive. And I think, yeah. yeah. Sarty needs a, a Lemsip enema or something. <laughs> Whoa, gee, you're quite anally fixated today. <laughs> what do you mean today? That's my first anal reference, to be fair. That, I mean, Mark, the others all came from Mark. You know, but I, I think it, one of the worst uh, kind of, you know, things to say about someone is old. You know, it'll be like, you know, like desk blockers, cock blockers. It'll be like life blockers. You know, it's it's all this. That's, that's the one thing I really felt with young people. It's, and I always hated it. You know, you, you, I, I, I've probably been to about a quarter of schools in Britain to do events and talks and stuff. There would always be a bit at the beginning where the principal would say, and you, uh, you young children, hold the future in your hands. And they would look with this baffled fury. You know, they're like, <laughs> we're not the ones with the credit cards. We're not the ones with the voting powers. We're not anything. Why are you dumping it on us, you know? Mm-hmm. It's us. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we can't even say Gen X or Gen Y. It's us. Yeah. Every totally. single one of us. That's not funny. Well, it's, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll edit it earlier. Jesus Christ. Well, the thing is as well, if we, if we read the transcript of that, it'll just look like you're saying it's the US and then we'll yeah. get a lot of shit for uh, annoying the Americans. Demonising a whole country. Yeah. <laughs> Here to demonise, you could give me a regular slot. I could demonise uh, a country uh, <laughs> one a month. <laughs> Sarchi, um, thank you so much. For thank you very much show. for doing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, amazing, especially given your your your, your illness. Yeah, please. I'm really sorry about my uh, my. Uh... Do you remember that that advert in the seventies? Uh, uh, for tunes, God, second class ticket to Nottingham. Remember that advert? Yes, <laughs> I do. That's who, I, that's who I am today. Imagine, I don't think they advertise menthol sweets anymore on TV, do they? No, and oh, I think I Emma can know. Emma can cut out that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. In, in between. <laughs> Sorry, Emma. That's that's an enjoyable job. That's an occupational hazard. That's so we don't put the wrong bit out. We'll just put a series of sniffs and then <laughs> yes. <we> can the rest. <laughs> Here's the show's outtakes, outtakes yeah. at the end. <laughs> also, because we're under attack from the wild boar here, so it's almost like I've... I've are you? Chingale. Chingale. Yeah, chingale. See. Ah, are you, uh, so what are they doing? Are they rooting around all on, all on your land? Yeah, uh, but we've got some poachers nearby, and I'm going out every night and firing blanks out into the uh, dark night. Great. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like Ed's love life. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. 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 You guys. It's like it's like a fraternity, you guys. Yeah, where did the where did, where's the bloody positivity in the I debate, know. eh? <laughs> yeah. You got a bloody cheat you two talking about that. I think we do need to be more positive. Fuck that. Let's keep firing blanks into the night. <laughs> <laughs> It works though. I fire, uh, I fire one off, and they go. Whoa! I can hear them in the distance. <laughs> really? Yeah. Can, can we hear your wild boar impression again? Woo! <laughs> it sounds like somebody at a, a Quantum Pig concert. Well, I'm telling you, what did uh, Churchill say? A, a dog looks up to you, a cat looks down on you, but a pig is an equal. Yeah. 
<laughs> Stay piggy. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank Love you so you. much. Hope you feel better soon. Yeah. So off uh, Sarchi goes, presumably into a bath of lemsip. <laughs> <laughs> that was the safer option. She did very well there, didn't she? As I said to her beforehand, I said, thank you for doing this. You're not just a trooper, you're a starship trooper, you know, battling insectoid alien bug hordes in order to join us. So, yeah, very grateful. What did you just say? <laughs> Have you not seen Paul Van Verhoeven's Starship Troopers? Oh, right. Okay, yes. Now, now I get it. Wow, you doing a sci-fi reference rather than me. You'll be talking about, you know, King Crimson album next. I could. Could you? Go on then. Yeah, only if you do a poem. Um, there was a man called Gillespie whose poetry was not as good as it should be. He read it too often. And oh, you, you, for you, 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 you fuck yourself now. <laughs> often. <laughs> and, and, and when I heard I had to cough at them because oh. they I oh, fucking hell. Yeah. I, I went down here. Well done for not going. It makes my penis softer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Touch of class right at the end. So, Ed, what do you make of the uh, most recent King Crimson album? Uh, I'm, I, to be honest, I felt I was slightly disappointed. Um, I didn't feel like... What's the, it called? The, the, <laughs> um, softening disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It also it sounds like your love life. <laughs> oh, God. What um, is it called? Does Mark know? <laughs> no, I don't know. You don't know how that we go. It is called Softening Disappointment. King Crimson released an album every 17 seconds, so it's hard to keep up. In the Court of the Crimson King. No, that's the first album. It's probably a reissue that's probably been remastered, probably by Stephen Wilson, I would imagine. <clears throat> don't even know who they are. Does that upset you? <laughs> so many things that you do that upset me. Just to pick on one thing would just be... Oh, madness. Greg Lake, I know him. Emerson Lake and Palmer. Yeah. They did some Christmas stuff. Now you're getting on my uh, wavelength. Excellent. Christmas is coming, of course. Isn't it just? The new, have you seen the new uh, John Lewis advert? Not no. yet. Oh, that's exciting for you, isn't it? But I bet you're right into a bit of Christmas consumerism, aren't you? Bet you're into a big bit of corporations making you think they're nice people by showing a three old ladies sledging down a hill. All I know is that it involves a Venus flytrap. So right now my own personal creative imagination is going off on some very bizarre tangents because nothing says Christmas like a Venus flytrap. Yeah, the Amazon one's a real piece of work. Have you seen that one? No. It's no. um it's three old ladies sat on a bench together and then one of them has a little think and then this soft cushion arrives and you think, oh, she's going to give it to her friend to sit on on the bench. But then they go and put the soft cushions on three sledges and they sledge down a snowy hill laughing together. And as they're sledging down, it cuts back to a sort of sepia tone image of them as young children laughing together. A real journey through time there of laughter brought to you by the company that are helping to fuck the planet that you won't be able to have that journey on in future. It's a wonderful <laughs> piece of work. It really is. Do you know what? I think you should uh, probably get a Nobel Prize for your criticism of uh, advertising. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, I think maybe we should do a, a, a slot on the next episode where we specifically just rip all of the Christmas ads. Yeah, well, I have to say I... I 
I like Christmas, and I've been offered a couple of. It's annoying when your comic voice sort of catches up with you because I've been offered two Christmas adverts this year, uh, or sort of Christmas campaigns, and they both centre around like an alternative Christmas. And I realise that people think I'm a sort of mardy piece of shit. <laughs> so they're both like, <laughs> we're aware that John probably hates all the shit Christmas telly, so we've got a campaign where he talks about everything else that's on. And you're like, oh no, I don't want to do that. I like Christmas telly. <laughs> I think, oh, people just think I hate everything. And I don't. I only hate 99.9% of everything. So who have we got coming up next episode, Mark? Uh, I don't quite know. You don't know? I thought you'd got them booked. I've got them booked, but I'm, 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 judging with the, I'm juggling with the dates at the moment. Let's tease the listener with something that will really keep them gripped. Is there, and if there is, what is the probability that we will be able to finally do an episode on the future of bananas? A very high possibility. In fact, we have a lady who's an expert on bananas, both past, present, and future. It'd be like a Christmas carol of bananas <laughs> <laughs> banana of christmas past the banana oh. of christmas future and, and the and the banana of of of, of, pre, of christmas present um we'll we'll be bringing that to eager listeners to mash up their bananas <laughs> oh, with God. their Chris, with their christmas uh, sensibilities who will have a bent yellow cavendish for tiny tim who will have a bent yellow cavendish for tiny tim tiny tim ain't around no more he's banana bread mate <laughs> right, well, I'm going to go and rewrite the Christmas Carol about bananas. I need a project. Who would you cast in that? Um, oh, just the Muppets again. What if it ain't broke? Don't fix it. Right. Okay. Boris Johnson in the Michael Caine role. He used to write about bent bananas, didn't he? Yes. Oh my Christ! Can you imagine Boris Johnson's Ghost of Christmas Past? <laughs> It'd be like, here's all of your fathered children. Uh, <laughs> well, I tell you what, he, he, you know, it is the ghost of Christmas past at the moment because when the lockdowns is over Christmas, well, he was prime minister and, and it, is a, yeah. it is a horrific, nightmarish apparition that's coming back to visit us, isn't it? Once more, he said cheerily. <laughs> well, thank you to Sarchi. Thank you as ever to Mark and Ed. We will be back very soon uh send your thoughts on that and anything i say anything else don't i don't want to know about dreams you've had or any of that shit but uh, if you have anything relevant to the podcast then send it here our email address is hello at john and the what's our twitter handle ed at j and the f and if you want to find like-minded people in the real world why not type in people planet pint our official partner for J and the F listeners to get together in pubs, save the planet, and drink beer. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> what? What? That's the new end. All right, fuck off. off. <laughs> See ya, losers. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm not happy with that. I, I All right then. Go on then. <laughs> Go on then. You do a journalistic sign-off. I'm Mark Stevenson, reporting live for the Future Notes. Okay. Okay. I'll have a go. Go on then. You get one take at this as well. Right, okay then. Well, thanks for listening. Usually it's John that does the sign-off, but today uh, I've got the mic and I just want to say a really big thank you to Sarchi for, for being with us, to Emma, our amazing producer, and uh, those other two cunts. Thank you and see you next week. <laughs> That'll do. That'll do. Let's use that every week. Lovely. Thank you very much. I wondered why you were doing a sort of whispering Bob Harris voice. And then it was just to 
soften the anticipation of the fact you're about to call us both cunts. Lovely stuff. I like to please. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Cheers. Cheers.